Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. You know, your relationship with your father is really a, a, a strong indicator of the trajectory of your life. Uh, that's why there is such a war on families and fathers. And so I ended up preaching out of this passage, and I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to use this as a jumping off point for our service here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that your word would be like fire this morning. It would be like an arrow that would strike the heart. Lord, that it would encourage and strengthen. Lord, that it would challenge and correct. And Father, I ask that you would snap that line in the spirit, God, that would give us uh, an indication, Lord, uh, uh, an example. Lord, your word would be the plumb line for every man in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to talk on fatherhood, and of course, there are uh, principles that will apply to mothers and women and children and so forth, but I really want to address the fathers this morning, this being Father's Day. And so, uh, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3. I want you to call your attention to verse 1, and then we're going to jump to verse 14. Listen to what it says in verse 3-1. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of you Gentiles, and then depending on what the version you're reading, all of a sudden there's a line or a colon, or he stops and he says this, assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you on how the mystery was made known to be my revelation, and he goes into what is a parenthetical thought. There's a, a parenthesis in the flow of this book, so Paul, in, in chapters 1 and 2, he's unpacking theologically what we have from Christ, and then he's going to go into this prayer, and just as he launches into the prayer, he decides he has one more thing he wants to talk about, and he's going to talk about the call of God on his life, and how God gave him grace to unpack the mysteries of Christ. And then he jumps in in verse 14, and listen to what he says. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So do you realize, you, you recognize here in verse 1 and verse 14 that he says the same thing twice. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. He starts to get into the, the subject he's about to get into, verses 14 through the end of the chapter, uh, in verse 1, and he stops and he gets into this parenthesis, this rabbit trail, and then jumps back in at verse 14. One of the reasons I bring that up is I want to give you scriptural basis for your pastor going on rabbit trails, because this is exactly what Paul did. Paul started to address something, he got on a little rabbit trail, and then he got back on track. So anytime you think, pastor, you get on rabbit trails, hey, it's scriptural, Amen. Verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And listen to what he says here. This is a powerful principle, especially for this hour in human history. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, and if you have, there's a little reference there in every, virtually every translation, you follow it to the bottom, and it will tell you it can be translated every family or all fatherhood. So you can read it this way. I kneel before the Father from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name. All families derive their name. Now in Scripture, a name represents identity. 
That's why often in redemptive history as recorded in scripture, you'll see people with a name change because their identity is altered by an encounter with God. Saul, the persecutor, became Paul, the apostle. Jacob, the conniving, uh, you know, the conniver became Israel, the prince with God. And so there was a change in the name. And so when we talk about names, it signifies identity. And so when it says, I kneel before the Father from whom every family or all fatherhood in heaven and on earth derives its name, it's saying that God is, God is the original Father. He is the one from whom we should get our definition of what fatherhood is. And this is a very important point because there's a war against family and against fatherhood and against manhood itself going on in this day and age. Fatherhood is not a biological uh, coincidence or an evolutionary coincidence. Oh, that's just the way it happened. It's not a political construct by uh, uh, some male patriarchal conspiracy so that we can consolidate power. Fatherhood is actually embedded in creation itself. It is a part, it is part of the created order, whether plant life or animal life or human life. And when we fail to realize that and we begin to diminish the role of both fatherhood and masculinity, there are huge and terrible repercussions that we're seeing across the landscape of our nation. I was just reading yesterday, and uh, it was the, uh, I, I forget the official title, but it, it's the agency that licenses psychiatrists and psychologists. And they have this volume that they, they you know, look at all these different maladies so that you can turn to them and you can find out what your malady is if you're struggling with something. And they've now, they now look at masculinity as largely negative. That it's, they call it toxic masculinity. And they look at masculinity as the problem. And they trace it to all these issues. And one of the things they'll say is like, if you look at men in prison who are uh, overtly violent, it's because of toxic masculinity. I would propose to you the reason that there's a lot of violence in prisons is because of the absence of healthy masculinity in the formative years of those children. A number of years ago, and some of you have probably heard this story, uh, Hallmark Cards, they had one of their major printing shops that was near a prison. And so what they did is they thought, hey, let's, let's do something for these men that are incarcerated. It's coming up on Mother's Day. We print a lot of cards. Let's offer free cards to these prisoners. And they, they gave many, many cards, and they ran out. More men were wanting cards. They wanted to write their mom. They wanted to give their appreciation to their mother. And so they thought, man, this was a win. This was a way that we can give back to the community and to those who are hurting the most. And so Father's Day was coming up, and they did the same. And wouldn't you know it? that only like two cards were asked for? The Mother's Day cards, were they, they went through them quickly, but the Father's Day cards, no one was interested. Because the fact is, incarcerated men have as a hallmark of their history uh, a disruptive, rocky relationship with their dads. As men, we have a huge effect on our children. Biologically, it is the male who determines the gender of the children. It's the male sperm that determines whether it's going to be a female or a male child. 
And I would propose to you that first the physical, then the spiritual, that men also have a great effect on how their children show up, even in their gender identity. And we need to realize this, that this is something we need to own, that our words carry weight. And so our, our, our role as a father is a very, very important thing. I came across something that I'd posted on Facebook a while back. Uh, this was a couple years ago on Father's Day. I'm going to read you some of it this morning. Fatherhood is not a human invention or some evolutionary biological coincidence, nor is it the construct of some patriarchal conspiracy, an attempt by men to keep the power. Fatherhood is foundational to reality. It is embedded in the creation because it emanates from its creator, the God who reveals himself as father. You could argue that the primary revelation, the self-revelation of God, is primarily, first and foremost, as a father. It is the foundation of creation, of healthy relationships, and if we lose that, everything else goes down with it. We need to realize that all of creation emanates from God. Just as an artist's creation is an expression of themselves and therefore gives us insight into their true identity, so scripture tells us that all of creation bears witness to him, revealing his eternal power and his divine nature. Fatherhood is one such expression, revealing who he really is. Thus, the war on fatherhood and family, whether conscious or unconscious, is a war against him. The war against masculinity. The war against the very distinction between male and female. The ideology that says, that disconnects gender from sex. You'll hear on the news, you'll hear and talk, uh, when you read, the, you know, read our periodicals today, you'll hear that that is rooted in solid science. It's a settled issue in science. And I'm here to tell you, that never came out of, the sci- out of science. Where that came from, the first person to write about uh, gender and sex being different was a Marxist, bisexual, she was a lesbian, a, a Marxist, in France by the name of Simone... Uh, De Beauvoir, I, I always have trouble with those, De Beauvoir, those, uh, those French names. But she was, she was a philosopher. She was, uh, I think she was a, actually an English or a literary professor. But she was a radical Marxist feminist. And the new left, see what's happened, we, we need to understand that this ideology that comes against the home, where it's really coming from. Marxism And the new left cannot tolerate the nuclear family, it cannot tolerate gender roles, and it cannot tolerate uh, healthy sexual boundaries. Matter of fact, the founders of these movements, you can, you know, names like Wilhelm Reich and, uh, you know, Simone de Beauvoir uh, is one of the feminist writers. She ended up losing her teaching license, by the way, because she came again, she was petitioning for the removal of all age of consent laws. And she was asking for the release from prison of convicted pedophiles. This is the ideology, the morality of these people. And so when people tell you it's settled science, don't buy it. It didn't come out of science. It didn't. Science is the result of observing uh, behavior, uh, data, so you come to uh, verifiable conclusions. 
This came out of a godless ideology, and they were Marxists, and they understood that this was, this was uh, something that was designed from the beginning. They understood they could not take over a nation without dismantling the nuclear family. Because they understood that the protection of the children from this ideology was godly parents that would raise them uh, in, in understanding of gender roles. And so there is a war against the idea of a male being a man and a female being a woman and us having defined roles. And now let me just make a statement here. If you struggle with what was classically called gender dysphoria, if you have that feeling that, man, I, my what I feel and my biology do not match. I feel like somebody that is born in the wrong body. That is a very real psych psychological struggle. I'm not minimizing that. That is tragic. My heart breaks for you. And I'm here to tell you there is help from heaven. I'm, there, I, there's, I'm not talking about just disregarding these things. But what we've done is we've turned a corner in the Western world, and it didn't come out of the scientific lab, it didn't come out of medical institutions, it came out of godless philosophy that made the distinction between gender and sex. And scripture is very clear. God created them male and female. And when there's a disconnect there, it's tragic, and we need to have tremendous compassion and we need to help people. We need to walk alongside them. And I have known people. I was just sharing with some guys back in the sound booth. I, I have some dear friends. Uh, this woman was deep, deeply involved in the lesbian community. And she, her, her lover had uh, a family that, her, her lover's family were, were believers. They were Pentecostal Christians on fire for the Lord. And uh, they began to witness to her. And she was very resistant to the gospel uh, because she wasn't raised in a godly home. But here her lover was, and she began to cry out to God and ask God, God, if this is true, you need to save me. And she got radically saved, but her heart was so enmeshed in this relationship, and she was asking, Lord, God, you've got to deliver me. If this is really your truth, then I need to get out of this relationship, and I can't extract myself. And what ended up happening is her lover was, ended up dying in a, in a tragic car wreck. And she got free, she married a minister, and they've been in ministry for many years, have a wonderful family, grandbabies, a phenomenal ministry, and God completely delivered her of those, those struggles in her life. Now, it was a process. There is help and there is healing, but we can't let go of the standard out of an unsanctified compassion that ends up giving credibility to godless philosophies. We've got to be so very careful. And there's this tension that we live in. There's, it's one thing to deal with the individual, and it's another thing to deal with the ideology. In dealing with the ideology, we need to take a strong stand. In dealing with the individual, we need to have a very compassionate approach, but take the stand. It is not doing anybody a favor when we endorse their bondage. We're leaving them stuck, and so we want to be people that walk in great compassion and in the power of God, and we come uh, trained uh, to deliver people from those types of bondages. And so uh, it's very important. So uh, modern-day Marxism, we need to understand the new left, modern-day Marxism, they, you can read their writings, and they understood. See, they came up against a dilemma after World War II. 
the, the, whole, the Frankfurt School out of which critical race theory and critical theory in general came, and those are Marxist ideologies, what happened was is they, they realized that their philosophy wasn't going to be able to turn nations. They realized that the prosperity of the West would insulate people from dividing along economic lines. And so they had to find a new way to divide cultures. And what they chose is race and sexuality. And you can read their writings. It was a very, uh, it was a strategic move. They were brilliant but diabolical. And they understood in order to take over a nation, we need to wipe out gender distinctions. We need to wipe out uh, age of consent laws. Do you know the United Nations right now is proposing to wipe out age of consent laws? Exposing little children to very graphic sexual things is not some side issue. It is central to the philosophy of the new left in modern day Marxism. Because what they want to do is divide people along the sexual morals and race. And so they have uh, done a really good job of doing so. And we need to understand this thing because we can end up siding with these demonic ideologies and fueling the problem. And so we need to understand. We don't have the luxury of just saying, well, I don't agree with that, but I don't know why. We need to know why. We need to understand what's really going on. If you're interested in I can give you some books that will help unpack that much better than I could. So we need to realize that a war against fatherhood and family, whether unconsciously or consciously, is a war against God. Because he is the ultimate father. And to say that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no difference between male and female, uh, that it doesn't matter, your biology is trumped by your psychology, uh, that is a demonic philosophy that leaves people in torment and bondage. And so fatherhood emanates from God. He is the original. And this is what Paul is telling us in Ephesians 3.15. All fatherhood derives its name, its identity from him. We as fathers are intended to be an expression of who he is. We are to flow from him. God does not use the term father to relate with us. He uses it with us as an expression of who he is. The problem is, is that we start with our broken earthly fathers and view him through the lens of them. And we need to understand this morning that Scripture's clear. He is the original. He didn't use that term in regards to himself so that he could relate with us. He is a father. That is the ultimate summation. You will never understand God unless you understand his fatherhood. We as fathers are intended to be an expression of him. Uh, God does not use the term to relate with us. He uses an expression of who he is. Our human roles are reflections of the divine, hints of the eternal order, faded expressions of the original that is God. He is not taking on our role in an ill-fitted attempt to relate with us. The essence of who he is is a father. We are the reflection. He is the reality. We have been assigned these roles as created sons, but through the fall, these have been twisted, distorting the real and the original through sin. And gentlemen, I want to tell you, unless you deal with your own father issues, you will replicate those in the, in the next generation. 
to the degree that we don't settle our father issues. And the fact is, every one of us has them. Because every one of us has a father who has fallen. There are no perfect dads. And so the enemy will strategize to wound us, and no one can wound us like a dad. And even if you had a godly father like I did, my dad is a great man. Uh, we, we, are, we have a great relationship. We talk at least daily and a lot of times multiple times a day. I was out at Teen Challenge the other day. I preached. I got done, and this young man stood up and came right to me. He said, you look just like your dad. <laughs> I take that as a compliment. I love my dad. But there were things my dad did that wounded me. And my dad, is man, he's a man of God, so there were times where he realized some things he did. He drove an hour and a half to see me, and he said, I need to talk to you. Pulled up in my driveway and said, I, you know, I was thinking about this, and I don't know why I did that. Would you forgive me? That's a good dad. But here's the problem. That if we don't understand and we don't face those issues, if we don't begin to deal with those and release them through forgiveness and even redeem those things, we end up replicating them in the next generation. And father wounds are a, 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 the, the, really the taproot of a lot of our problems today. There was an interesting study that went on. What, what it was is in South Africa... Uh, there were a lot of endangered species, and South Africa was one of the primary places people point to as a real win in preserving these dying species of, of animals. And uh, so what they did is they would start these animal reserves, and they would try to put all these endangered species on these reserves. And one of these animal reserves had a plethora of elephants. Too many. So what they wanted to do is they're going to move these elephants to some of them to a new animal reserve. But they realized, man, these big, the, the adult male elephants are just too big to move. So what they did is they gathered up a lot of the small elephants and they said, we'll just, they'll just grow up on the reservation. Well, a few years into this, they began to find that there were these crime scenes that were showing up all over the animal preservation. It was dead rhinos. And they knew it wasn't poachers because their valuable tusk was still intact. And they would see these bloated, uh, dead rhinos with big holes punctured in their sides. And they couldn't figure out what was happening. So they began to mount cameras all over this preserve to figure, find out who was the, the perpetrator of these murders. And they found out, catch this, it was a gang of young adolescent elephants. They would pick on these rhinos, and they would pick on other animals too. They were, as they began to grow, they would, they would go up and they would kick them. They would roll them over. Sometimes they would, they would knock them over and sit on them and all these kind of crazy things. They were just like bullies. And there were certain male elephants that would rise. They even had names. Uh, they, they named each one of them. And they would rise to the surface as kind of the gang leader. And some of them they actually had to kill because they would start to attack humans and, and so forth. And it was out of, outside of the realm of normal elephant behavior that they'd seen on these other preservation sites. And what they realized is they weren't raised in families. They were raised by one another. And so finally they decided, we're going to have to figure out a way to get some older elephants, some male, mature male elephants. And so they got these huge trucks, they'd never done this before, and they moved these huge bull elephants. And what happened is these bull elephants began to kind of push these young ones around and bring them into line, and they stopped their murderous rampages. It's an amazing thing. 
Now, it's the... It's a picture, even embedded in creation, of the effect that a father is to have on young men. That to harness that potential so that it's not destructive. And the violence we see in the inner city today, the violence we see among young people, is not the result of toxic masculinity. It's the result of the lack of healthy masculinity being there to raise them up and to uh, bring them into their potential. I just heard another story the other day. There was, I don't remember where the school was now, but there was a lot of violence on the campus and they were trying to figure out how are we gonna stop this because some of these kids were just beating each other up. The kids were scared to go to school. Uh, even the teachers were worried. And a group of fathers that, who had kids went to that high school. They said, we're gonna start the dad patrol. And they signed up and volunteered, and they would, between classes, they just alternated shifts, and the dad would st- dads would stand in the hallway. They would high-five the kids. They got to know them by name, and the violence stopped. And the news media picked up on this, and they went and asked the kids. They said, what's going on? What, is there a change? They said, oh, yeah, man, we used to be scared to come to school. But now that these dads are here, it feels safe here. And one of the reporters asked this young woman, they said, well, how, how is it that these dads are able to, to stop these, you know, these kids from acting out? And she said, have you ever heard of the look? I mean, the dads just give the look. But there was something calming about these dads being in that environment. And I'm telling you, our role as fathers, even though we often don't understand it, we need to, we need to get a, a vision for this that we, our voice, our presence carries weight and that we have a huge part in raising the next generation, both male and female. When, when dads, you know, and, and on Mother's Day, we can talk about the role of a mom and the, the, the essential nature of having moms involved. But I'm telling you, a dad in both the, the little girl and that little boy's life, it's the dad who begins to shape their identity even more so than a mom. Fatherhood emanates from Father God. And as we begin to understand who he is and model ourselves after him and get healed of our own father issues by coming into relationship with the ultimate father, then we can even begin to heal our past, heal you know, backwards in the generations. I had to go through that. My dad and I had to bury the hatchet. There were some things I had to apologize for, that he had to apologize for. There were awkward conversations we had to have. But I'm so grateful now for his, his influence in my life. And only then can we begin to have the influence we need to have into the future. But if we don't settle the past, the past is going to cast a dark shadow over the future. And so our father issues are a huge issue. I don't think it's a coincidence that the revival of 25 years ago that has literally wrapped the globe in a move of God was called the Father's Blessing out of Toronto, and it happened on Father's Day in in, uh, Brownsville Assembly in Pensacola, Florida. It was a move of God having to do with the Father heart of God. And it was necessary before the great harvest could be brought in. Because if we would have had a great harvest without fathers healed of their father wounds, we would end up with a dysfunctional revival. And so we need to understand that fatherhood emanates from him. 
When we are trying to define fatherhood, we must not begin with man as the example. When we do, we reduce the concept of a father to the frail attempts of human fathers to be dads. We then superimpose their failures and deficiencies upon our Heavenly Father. This drives us to the faulty presuppositions that God will fail us like our earthly father did. I know for me, when I got saved, I had some issues in regards to my father that kept me from really receiving the father's love. And I had an encounter with the Lord one night when I was still in Teen Challenge. I was sitting in my little, my little bedroom and the Lord spoke to me and said, go ask John, it was another student, John Godfrey. He said, go ask John if he has a devotional. I thought, that is so weird. I went into his room and said, do you got a devotional? Yeah, I just put it in my suitcase here. I walked out like, okay, sat down, opened it up, and boom, there was this article about fatherhood, and the Lord began to minister to me, and all of a sudden, the Lord took me back to an episode in my young adolescent years. I was, I was probably, I don't know, it, it probably was more like when I was 14 years old, and I was just starting to rebel. My dad didn't know I was already using drugs. I was already going out and doing a lot of things I shouldn't do. He didn't realize it yet, but he could tell there's something going on. And I remember my dad coming into my room, and uh, we lived in this parsonage. The church my dad pastored, it was the parsonage. You had to be careful walking in the upstairs because it would shake the light in the downstairs. It was a pretty rough, rough house. And uh, so the, our bedroom was this kind of attic room that it had these you know, slanted walls. And I was sitting at this drafting board I was drawing, and my dad came in. He said, what you doing? I said, um, drawn. I'm like, what are you doing? That's what I'm thinking. You know, why are you in my room? And he said, ah, uh, you know, just he's talking small talk. And I'm thinking, what's going on here? This doesn't usually happen. Why is he invading my space is what I was thinking. And he, he was just talking and, and uh, just small talk. And I was responding, you know, and I'm thinking, this is awkward. And all of a sudden, my dad walked over and I was in a dormer. It was a little slanted roof, you know. And so he had to kind of crouch down and get inside the dormer. And he went, he said, Dave, I, uh, I love you. He put his arm around me and kind of stared at the dormer wall. And I'm, I'm looking one way. He's looking at the other. And here I am, real stiff. And he's, I love you. And I said, oh, okay. And then he said, well, uh, I'll talk to you later. Walked out. And as a 14-year-old kid, I'm thinking, that was weird. What was that about? Because my heart was already hard. But now, as a 19-year-old kid that had been radically encountered by the Lord after a lot of pain in my life, I was processing this father when the Lord began to talk to me. And all of a sudden, I went into this encounter, and I was back in that room, and I saw my dad doing that, and it broke me in half. I began to weep. Because I realized how awkward that was for my dad. For him to come in there and tell this rebellious 14-year-old kid that was not going to reciprocate the affection, he had to go in there and kind of bend down in a dormer and stare at the wall to this kid that's all stiff, I love you. And I didn't reciprocate, but I knew where that was really coming from, that my dad really did love me. I had bought into a lie that my dad didn't love me, that he loved my sister, and, but he didn't love me. And I, there, there was this wound that was there. And all of a sudden, I just began to weep because I realized how hard that was for my dad, how awkward that was for my dad, and that it came from a tender place that he really did love me. He just didn't know how to show it. 
And in that moment, something broke open. It was like a floodgate. And I was able to receive the Heavenly Father's love. I'm telling you, these father wounds, we have a tendency, being humanoids, that we evaluate God through our human experience rather than evaluating our human experience through God. And God lovingly came down and reminded me and took me into that encounter. And some of you guys this morning, some of you ladies this morning, have father wounds. And I'm telling you that God wants to touch that and remove that. There are no perfect fathers. I remember a number of years ago, as a pastor, you end up in situations where you're with families at the end of their life. And, and uh, there was a, a dad uh, laying on a hospital bed and I knew some of the history of this family, having, having counseled some of the family. And so now I'm in this room, and, and the dad had had a rocky relationship with the Lord, and had, uh, they were pretty sure he was going to go to heaven, but it was, things were up in the air. And I watched the family lean over, and I watched one of the kids say to their dad, whisper, I love you, dad. You were a good dad. Now, you got to understand, I knew the backstory, Okay. I knew that was a generous evaluation of what really went on. And it broke me. It brought me to tears. Because I saw the look on that dad's face. All of a sudden, this aged, elderly man, this little childlike look came on his face like he just drank it in. It's almost, he, I mean, he was at death's door. He almost sat up. He was just drinking that in. He just, like a little child, he needed to hear that from his children. And it was just such a vivid picture to me that this was a man who wanted to be a good dad but didn't know how. And this man, because I'd talked to some of the family, had hurt some of his children by the things he did. But yet, who he really wanted to be was a good dad. And I'm telling you, if we can understand that, that broken fathers produce broken sons who grow up to be broken fathers who produce broken sons. And what God wants to do is he wants to stop that negative legacy. And if we'll yield ourselves to him, God, I'm telling you, God can turn a whole family line in one generation. One generation that thing can turn. My, my dad, my dad's dad, my dad led him to the Lord at the end of his life. He was a very immoral man, a drinker, very sexually immoral. The whole family was dysfunctional. On my mom's side, same thing, just a lot of dysfunction. But mom and dad met Jesus. And it's like that flow. It, there's a beautiful picture in, in, a, in the book of Exodus where they come to the River Jordan to cross the River Jordan. You remember where the River Jordan stopped flowing and they marched across? Do you realize it says it stopped flowing at a town called Adam? God wants to stop that Adamic flow of the fall that brings all that garbage with it. And he wants to stop that flow so it's no longer flowing in our family line. As I was praying this morning, just asking the Lord what he wants to do this morning, I saw a picture. And it was... It was like this landscape, and I knew it was inheritance. It was family histories. And all of a sudden, 
off the landscape, lifted all this valuable stuff that had been hidden in the weeds. It's like it, it was separated and you could see the value that laid in the fields that were uh, hidden under all the other stuff that was in those fields. And the Lord reminded me of a story. It was kind of a strange illustration. But it was of a young boy. I want to say his name was Charles Hall. His mother and father went to the Bible school founded by Charles Finney, Oberlin College. It may not have been founded by him, but he was the president of Oberlin College. They went to that school and ended up as missionaries in Jamaica. And they ended up having to come back because they couldn't sustain it financially. And so as a young boy... He began to ask God about wealth, and he wanted to learn, he wanted to do something to create wealth so that he could fund missions. And one day in class, in science class, the teacher showed them a little piece of aluminum, a little tiny block of aluminum, and talked about how valuable this was. And he said, the person who learns to extract aluminum out of the soil will be a very, very wealthy person. And so he set his life towards doing that. At that time, aluminum was among the crown jewels. There was a block of aluminum among the crown jewels. Matter of fact, Napoleon, he would feed his guests on plates of silver and gold, but the guest of honor ate on a plate of aluminum because it was so valuable. Matter of fact, the pinnacle of the Washington Monument was made of aluminum because they could only get just tiny little elements. It's one of the most plentiful elements in the earth, but it was so hard to extract out. And so he began to study that, and he would, when he'd come up, he'd try something, it didn't work, he'd, he just began to worship the Lord, and he kept trying. And one day, he learned uh, through electrolysis to separate aluminum from the soil, and he started a company that eventually became known as Alcoa. And he became a very, very wealthy person and funded missions and a lot of other things. And as I was laying in bed this morning and the Lord showed me that picture, he reminded me of that story and it's like, let me put it this way. Honor is the way in which you extract the wealth out of the previous generation. There is riches in every family in your history. I don't, it, it, it doesn't matter in this sense how broken your father and your forefathers were. God by design put great wealth in the generations. But the, we've got to extract that. We've got to have eyes to see. And only as we begin to see him as the real father that can, we can relate right to our earthly fathers. And God wants to extract some of those riches. I think I may have talked about this recently, but I can't help myself when I think about this principle. It's in the last will and testament of King David. 2 Samuel chapter 23. And David, it's, it's his last will and testament. Now David has lived a phenomenal life. I mean, what God has done with him is epic. 
And so David is at the end of his life, and he's going to write, it says, this is the last words of David. It's possibly him writing it himself, or it's somebody writing what he's dictating, but he's saying, this is the last words of David. And he goes on to say, the anointed one. I am the oracle of God. I speak God's words. God has blessed me. He says, is not my household right with God? That's a big statement when you see his history. This was a man who knew forgiveness and redemption. And now he's an old guy. He's ready to step over into eternity. There's no false humility here. He's just owning. And he's saying, I'm the guy God put his hand on in my generation. And he's just glorying in all that God did with him. But what breaks me and what just struck me so strong reading that a while back was he says, this, this is the last words of David, comma, the son of Jesse, comma, the king of Israel. And it so struck me that David, at the end of his life, when he had reached the pinnacle, he's so revered, even today, he's so revered by his people that he had achieved this enormous success. And while he's standing on that platform, he says, wait a minute, I'm David. You know who I am, the king, the oracle. Wait a minute, I want to introduce you to somebody. And he pulls this broken man named Jesse up next to him and says, hey, I'm the product of this guy. And in so doing, he redeemed his history and wiped the shame from his dad's name. This was the man who didn't want to own him in front of the prophet. But David owns him in front of the world. And that is redemption. We need eyes to see as we look over the landscape of our past, our, the history, the legacy that has been left to us by our forefathers. And even if there's just, just broken landscape, I'm telling you, there, are, there is treasure there and honor is the way by which you extract it. And when we really get healed, we begin to have compassion on the broken father that fathered us. And when we give mercy, all of a sudden something is released from that history that we can then begin to walk in and give to the future. But we've got to see it. Bitterness will cause you to be blinded to the treasures in your family history. But gratitude and honor is the way to lift that out. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward as I read through the rest of this. When we try to define fatherhood, we must not begin with man as the example. When we do, we reduce the concept of a father to the frail human attempts of human fathers to be dads. We then superimpose their failures and deficiencies upon our heavenly father. This drives us to faulty presuppositions that God will fail us like our earthly fathers did. Earthly fatherhood was intended to aid us in our relationship with our Heavenly Father, showing us the way to Him, how to relate with God as a father, how to see ourselves as sons and men of God, etc. But now, due to the fall, fatherhood has all too often become the primary hindrance. When we start with God, however, we then have the proper lens through which to interpret what true fatherhood is, and it equips us to face the hardships of life. When we start with God, He redeems the phrase and even the relationship. We are then able to extend grace to the broken sons our fathers were. God's revelation of himself as father is the first step in redeeming us from the fall. He wants to redeem this idea, this concept, and elevate it once again. 
Dads, you pave the way for your kids to relate with God. Your example, your relationship with them and with God serve as a temperate, template pressed into the moldable clay of their young minds. This holy stewardship must be recognized for what it is. But you can't give what you don't have. We, like Jesus, need to hear the Father speak. You are my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. If the Son of God himself, the sinless Son of God, had a perfect Father, needed to hear that from his Father in order to launch into ministry, how much more do you and I, with our broken pasts, need to hear that and receive it and get it in us so that we become like John the Beloved? John, when he wrote his gospel, he said five times, and the one whom Jesus loved, and the one whom Jesus loved. You know who he was talking about? He's talking about himself. And that wasn't arrogance. He wasn't saying, yeah, when you look at the disciples, I'm really the one who he loved. He wasn't saying that. Peter didn't get offended when he, wrote, when he read John's gospel. What John was saying is that when I look in the mirror, I can't help but see the guy that's been impacted by God's love. The man who was a son of thunder, a bar brawler, would would empty the bar in a fight, became the apostle of love, John the Beloved. And the, 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 the turn in that thing was when he received the love of God. When he, when John would look at himself, he couldn't help it. There he is again. There's the one whom Jesus loved. And until you see yourself that way, you will never be able to be the father or the mother that you were intended to be. We need to be infected, impacted by the love of God so that we don't feel like we're failures and we're not measuring up, but we know the one who knows us best loves us most. And he's the one who defines us. Fathers were meant to define their children. And the ultimate father wants to define you. He wants to heal you of your father wounds. I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Paul says this later on in that passage. When he he begins that prayer, he said, I pray that the power of the Spirit would come upon you. Not for ministry, he says, so that you would grasp the immensity, the height, depth, width, and breadth of the love of God for you and for the saints in Christ. And then he says this strange phrase, and that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. How can you know something you can't, that is beyond knowledge? What he's saying is you need an encounter with the love of God that is beyond your ability to think yourself into. There's something we need from God we'll never be able to study ourselves into. It comes by encountering Him, the Father who loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, the Father said, I'm going to send someone to rescue my sons and daughters. And when that becomes your identity, then you have it to give, dads. I want to do two things this morning. If you're here this morning and you've never been reconciled to Jesus, you're saying, I need to get right with God. Or maybe it was something you did, but you've wandered. And you're saying, I want to recommit to Jesus this morning. I want to be reconciled to the Father. If that's you, I want you to raise your hand. We want to pray for you this morning. You need to get right with the Lord. Listen, God brought you here this morning for this very thing. This is a divine appointment. So if that's you, don't don't hesitate. Just raise your hand. We want to pray for you this morning. If you need to get right with the Lord, 
Raise your hand high until I acknowledge it. You know you need to get right with the Lord. Listen, I know there are people here this morning that you need him. You need a fresh surrender. If that's you, just raise your hand. The second thing I want to do this morning is I want to pray for the dads. I want to pray for the men. I'm going to ask every male in this room to come up front. I want you to just stand in this altar area right now. I want to pray a Father's blessing over you. And we're going to just present ourselves to God. We're going to ask Him to visit us so that we can become the men. I'm telling you, what this nation needs, what the church needs, are men who become fathers. Listen, you may be on the years where you're going to be producing biological children. It's time to begin to produce some spiritual children. There's a generation of young men that need to hear from another man. You have what it takes. So now, ladies, I want you to get behind these men and just put your hands out towards them. I want you to bless the men. Come behind them and, and just begin to pray. And guys, listen. Every one of us have felt like we're not up to the call. Every one of us has had doubts about our ability to do what it's going to take. But it's not about us doing it. It's about him doing it through us. Bruce Overson, where are you at? Where's Bruce is right here. One time Bruce and I were counseling a young man. And the Lord told me, scoop him up in your arms and give him a father's hug. And I remember telling the Lord, Lord, he's only like eight years younger than me. This is awkward. Have Bruce do it. Bruce is a few years older than me. He could be more of a father figure. And the Lord rebuked me and he said, I'm not talking about you releasing. I'm talking about me fathering him through you. Now grab that guy. And I grabbed him and just held him and he wept and gave him a father's blessing. We want to receive the father's blessing this morning. So it sinks down to the roots of our identity. And then we want God to get, strengthen us to give it away. Some of you, I'm telling you, God's going to turn the legacy of your families. What the enemy meant for bad, you are the kinsman redeemer. You hear me? You are the kinsman redeemer. The enemy brought shame into your family line, failure. You're going to look back on the, the past generation and say, God, I forgive them. Lord, I bless them. And we're going to turn this thing. So Lord, we ask right now, God, for a father's blessing. Lord, we need you. Father, as men, we stand before you as the broken sons that we are. But Lord, we're your sons. And Lord, we're asking that you would open the eyes of our understanding, open our ears, that we could hear, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. Lord, by your spirit, shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. And Lord, I'm asking God for special grace for those who have been especially wounded. Lord, those who were never able to hear from their father, a father's affirmation. Lord, I'm asking God that you would reach in and touch them this morning. Lord, that they would begin to receive from you what they should have received from their dad so that they can turn and bless their fathers. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.